0: This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priyante-Martin, and today we're going to talk about the IMO's new carbon targets for shipping. The International Maritime Organization, or IMO, has just concluded what may have been one of its most important meetings in recent years. The U.N. Shipping Regulator's Marine Environment Protection Committee, or MEPC, agreed to target net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 for the world's shipping fleet, and delegates agreed to aim for 20% to 30% cuts at the end of this decade and 70% to 80% reductions ten years later. Environmental groups were disappointed by the new goals, complaining that they're not aligned with the Paris Agreement's target of halting global temperature rises at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Many countries wanted the IMO to adopt 37% emissions cuts in 2030 followed by a 96% reduction in 2040. That's most of the way to zero, 10 years before the middle of the century. But let's remember, until this week, the IMO was targeting a 50% cut in emissions by 2050. So its new targets are much more ambitious. As the meeting drew to a close, I had a chance to talk to Tristan Smith, who is an associate professor in shipping and energy at the University College London's UCL Energy Institute and he's been at the IMO for the discussions. Smith also works at consultancy UMass, which has already said that those new numbers don't live up to the Paris Agreement goals.
1: So it means that we don't stop talking about 1.5, unfortunately. So it would have been really nice if the IMO had come out with something that would have buried the subject of, you know, is this an appropriate level of ambition? Does it need to be revised? Um, What do we think about regional action? But it leaves all of that on the table because... Uh, It isn't a proportionate share of the budget for being in line with 1.5. Those numbers, as we calculate them, are a 37% reduction in 2030 and a 96% reduction in 2040. What you can say is that it leaves those values within reach in practice. I mean, this is a transition which isn't driven only by the IMO. It's driven by a combination of IMO regulation, regional, national and industry actions. And so, it's also a strategy which will be revisited again in 2028. And so unfortunately for the, for the industry, it means that there remains uncertainty about the timing um, of when those numbers might be revised upwards and exactly how they would be changed in the future.
0: But he said these targets provide clear direction that shipping is heading into a new era, reaching a 70% emissions cut by 2040 that's going to require a radical shift in technology. Is he disappointed that the IMO didn't adopt targets that would see shipping align with keeping temperature rises at 1.5 degrees? Of course.
1: That doesn't mean it's not still a massive change. And so I don't think it's necessarily about the emotions associated with the numbers as kind of, you know, what does this now mean? And how does anyone modify to make a a decision and a strategy that that goes with what is clearly a, a better signal than we had previously on on the next 15, 20 years, um, but still retain some uncertainty and, and some risks that will need to be managed.
0: The wording of the final agreement contains some wiggle room. The 2030 and 2040 goals aren't targets, but indicative checkpoints. The ultimate goal is net zero by 2050, and that's if national circumstances allow.
1: There's always ambiguity in these things, unfortunately, and, and uh, that's where it's so difficult because I guess anyone in industry would like something very clear, and certainty and clarity is, is normally what helps investment or maximizes investment, but it's a very, very difficult political and um, multilateral agreement that has to have a lot of countries with different concerns um, comfortable, and that is normally achieved through that ambiguity. But what it shows you, actually, is that there is, despite the ambiguity, quite a lot of common ground to go to some very high numbers that I think most people probably will not expect. So there's a the momentum, in other words. A number of countries,
0: including China, Argentina, and Brazil, oppose setting tough ambitions for 2030. Smith told me there were two sets of concerns technology and the impact of transport costs on trade
1: so the technological ones relate to fuel availability to shipyard capacity and maturity of solutions and that has been a very valid point made over the last uh, couple of years about the extent to which we can we can be confident that those will mature and be available in volumes and i think you know the first thing is that this resolution uh, will unlock the midterm measures to be designed to stringencies that will create good investment cases. Good investment cases, I think, by 2025, which is when the timescale is for the adoption of midterm measures. So that's the point at which you can actually see the numbers in the Marple Amendment that will be driving compliance requirements and therefore business case. So um, with investment flowing from 2025, we will know a lot more in 2028 when these numbers are revisited as to well, or not that investment is is at a pace that is going to be consistent with an even higher number for 2040 target, or indeed whether you know, there's some evidence that is challenging whether the 2040 target is is viable. So so there'll be more information that, that affects the technological parameters. But the questions around transport costs come from many of the countries which are far from their markets and are worried that the generalised increase in transport cost, which many of them associate with a levy but is actually just a feature of the technology transition generally, will have competitive disadvantage consequence for them as they export their goods into the global markets. And that is something which is significantly affected by the way we design policy measures. And that's something we'll revisit MEPC 81 when there should be an interim report from the Comprehensive Impact Assessment on states, which is the kind of key piece of analysis that shows how the policy measures for achieving those greenhouse gas reductions might then impact different countries. And that that debate and how that is settled by the different member states is key for, for, really the confidence of the countries with those concerns as we go to any kind of further stringency increase or implementation of policy. So there's, there's still at least these two issues that need to be handled as we move forwards.
0: MEPC 81 is the next meeting of the IMO's Environment Committee in April, when a study is due that will explore the impact of a basket of measures under consideration aimed at turning the IMO's targets into reality. Those midterm measures include proposals for putting a price on carbon as a way to close the cost gap between fossil fuels and more expensive low and zero carbon fuels. Another measure under consideration is a fuel standard, which would ratchet down the emissions that ships are allowed to spew into the atmosphere. Smith told me that there's been a good deal of misunderstanding around a proposed levy on greenhouse gas emissions from shipping fuels, particularly by countries that worry about the disproportionate impact on their economies.
1: When we have better data from analysis that goes on in the comprehensive impact assessment, a more in-depth analysis of the impact of different policy options. So something that shows what the consequences of a greenhouse gas fuel standard are, how that compares with various different variants of a levy and different uses of revenue. So there's the key kind of question is not so much what the carbon price is, but what do you do with the money that arises from that to find the right balance between the in-sector uses, which obviously are attractive for the for for supporting the transition, predominantly in our opinion in stimulating the production of new fuels and the way those are distributed between countries, including for purposes beyond shipping sectors transition. So that could include to address some of the climate impacts of shipping. It could include for technological inclusivity. So making sure that developing countries have have a good opportunity um, during the transition. So there are overlaps between those things. And that's why it really needs to have some good analysis to help um, the countries be reassured that they're, that they're getting a fair deal in the way that the policy package is designed and that they, we're not kind of locking in an advantage to certain countries or, you know, ending up with countries which, which either get economically damaged in a serious way or, or get left behind from a technological perspective. And that's, that's incredibly difficult. I think the way that, that step has now been set up at this meeting, we have a very good chance of having a good basis for the discussion and a lot, of, a lot of trust between the countries that need to find the right solution there.
0: Tradewinds recently reported that the U.S. government, which had been pursuing a decarbonization target that's aligned with a 1.5-degree pathway for shipping's decarbonization, is not currently a proponent of a carbon levy, although senior Biden administration officials said they're open to considering it. What they are in favor of is a fuel standard as a way to push shipping toward those targets. Smith told me that such a rule seems simple, but applying it alone may not be so easy.
1: It's got some advantages. It sends a very clear signal of the quantities of uh, of demand for different fuel products over time, um, which some people find harder to estimate given that we don't know exactly what future fuel prices will be and therefore what the optimal fuel strategy will be for a given carbon price. But that advantage of a higher level of kind of clarity of, of fuel demand is associated also with the fact that you don't have the revenues from the carbon levy so it's much harder to do something which is a distributional effect it's much harder to say okay so we've seen that the cost of compliance with that fuel standard means that countries in a certain region now have a much higher impact on their trade and therefore a higher economic penalty what can we actually do to compensate for that how do we address or mitigate it in any way well with a fuel standard there's there's very little at your disposal and i think that will make it in some ways a more difficult policy to to finalize because you then end up in the realms of exemptions, which many people tried to bring in for CII, but we for now don't have any significant exemptions or or kind of fudge factors like we see in the EDI regulation.
0: And that's why he says it's the combination of the fuel standard with a revenue raising tool like a levy that could provide certainty.
1: You know, the good news is that lots of other jurisdictions have had exactly the same problem. How do you do a And a a cost-effective transition that's also fair, and they generally find that that's the combination that can be very effective. Bringing a technical measure with high kind of certainty in combination with a an economic measure that gives a bit more flexibility and distributional power. So I mean that's why you know we shouldn't be too pessimistic about this. This is this is now relatively well-trodden path. Countries and regions have been doing it for a while, and IMO can build on a lot of that, and I think has a very good potential to come up with some some effective regulation.
0: but a key next step for the imo will be to take a long hard look at what are called the short-term measures particularly the carbon intensity indicator or cii that's a rule that started this year and grades ships based on their carbon emissions by tons carried and distance traveled it gets criticism from ship owners and operators for the way it penalizes some ships for things outside of their control and from environmentalists who complain of its lack of enforcement mechanism
1: cii revision being a process that, that starts anytime now and um, needs to be completed by the end of 2026. So we'll kind of need to operationalize the, the 2030 target because that's the main tool for getting an efficiency increase beyond beyond the the, the trajectory that we're on at the moment, which is not which is going to need strengthening to get us to the 20% and to strive for the 30% target that have just been agreed. So So there does need to be, and I think that's the one that affects the most near-term action, the way that that solidifies affects um, the way strategies might be set around the use of things like biofuels or further energy efficiency improvements on the existing ships and, and or strategies about new buildings and retrofitting of those vessels. So, so there's a lot that will need to be judged and done very quickly, um, which means doing something even before that CII revision clarifies and being ready for it, depending on exactly how it, how it resolves.
0: But with some disappointed that the IMO did not go far enough this week, how much weight should the UN body's target be given when compared to regional or national efforts to tackle shipping's greenhouse gas emissions, or even private sector initiatives? Smith told me that his team has always described shipping's decarbonization as a multi-lever transition.
1: So we've never tried
0: to say this is
1: all about the IMO. Obviously, you know, it could be cleanest if it was driven wholly by the IMO because... That would be the most unambiguous transition but we you know we have to acknowledge the realities of multilateral process and also the the role that 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 regulators in different regions and people with national strategies have been playing here as we have in in any part of the transition that this isn't something that's uniquely about shipping so so I, don't know, I don't know how I would put any sort of proportion on it because it's about providing... The IMO provides a certainty about a mass market transition. The phase we're in at the moment is actually about emergence of new technologies and adoption of those new technologies in small volumes to gain experience, to get crew training issues resolved, to figure out safety, to figure out how you um, develop supply chains and make investment cases. And that, that isn't something that the IMO ne- necessarily does for other technology transitions it wasn't the case for the sulfur transition which was which was driven first through regional measures it wasn't the case for NOx uh, emission control so i wouldn't have ever said that it was solely imo's responsibility for that and it's it's something which which we could easily share and i think we do need to share across all of those different forms and uh, as long as the imo is able to bring the mass market transition that we really need in the 2030s to 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 act at high velocity which the regulations that come out of this of this resolution will need to be designed to drive then then we still have a very significant role for the IMO but it is a it is going to be a test that the IMO is constantly held to it's not by any means resolved one way or the other just because we've adopted a resolution with strong numbers.
0: So here at the Green Seas podcast we'll keep tracking all those multiple levers as this work continues. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter explored an important discussion happening at the IMO that is garnering less attention than the debate around new greenhouse gas targets or putting a price on carbon. Many experts believe that assessing the greenhouse gas footprint of the various alternative fuels that could power shipping's cleaner future requires a full analysis of emissions in those fuels' life cycle. Draft guidelines to do just that were up for a vote at the IMO's Marine Environment Protection Committee this week. Get the newsletter in your inbox at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Tradewinds reported on a joint statement by major shipping names like Oldendorf Carriers and Hophug Lloyd that commits the companies to pursuing what are known as book and claim chain of custody systems. A form of carbon insets, these systems would allow cargo owners to pay for shipping powered by green fuels, even though those fuels are physically used on another route, but the signatories also called on the IMO to adopt those lifecycle guidelines. A marine fuels executive at giant energy company Shell told my colleague Lucy Hine that the company is ruling out ammonia, at least for now, as a fuel for shipping. Shell Marine President Melissa Williams said the safety concerns surrounding the fuel's toxicity is behind the decision not to sell the fuel yet. Read Lucy's story and more at TradeWindsNews.com. Music for this episode is by Alexi Action on Pixabay.